phrase that caught me this, uh, in the passage this morning was that one in Jeremiah uh, chapter 12, verse 5. If you have run with men and they wore you out, how will you ever run with the horses? If, if you're weary in safe country, how will you ever handle the jungles by the Jordan? If you can't handle this, how on earth are you going to handle that? All I wanted was a pat on the head, and that's what I got. From what I can tell, it was God who picked the fight. Jacob had taken his family down to the Jabbok River, and uh, it was late at night, and so he sent his, his wife and his sons across the river with all of his possessions And Jacob stayed on this side of the river alone in the night. And he went to sit down. And Genesis 32 says, out of nowhere, a man came and jumped him. It says, a man came and wrestled with him. But that word literally means to get dusty to get down and dirty. This wasn't an argument. This was a fight. So if I'm reading it right, Jacob is sitting alone at night by the river, and out of nowhere, a man came out, and he jumped him. And they went at it, you guys, for hours Late into the night until almost morning, they went at it. Jacob and this unidentified man were in a hand-to-hand combat. You can only imagine the stamina it would take to be in a hand-to-hand struggle with somebody for hours. Early in the morning as the night faded, and the sun began to rise, the man who jumped him realized that he was not going to overpower him. And so he reached out and he touched his socket. He touched his socket. He didn't kick it or slug it. He touched it. And when he touched it, he threw his socket out. And Jacob fell back down. And when he was falling, he reached up and he grabbed the man, I think, started to pull the man down with him. And the man said, let me go. It's almost daybreak. And Jacob, realizing by now that this was not just an ordinary man, said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And 
The man said, what is your name? Like he didn't know. And Jacob said, it's Jacob. And man said, not anymore. Tonight your name is Israel. It means wrestles with God. Fights with God. Because you have wrestled with God and overcome. Jacob said, what's your name? Man said, why do you ask my name? He blessed him and he vanished. Jacob went to look around and he saw the grass was matted where the two of them had wrestled for hours and Finally, when he gathered himself, he went to stand up. And when he went to stand up, fell down again. His hip was still out of joint. But he managed to get himself back to his feet. And he walked from that day forward uh, with a limp. As a reminder of the night. He fought with God and overcame. And he named the place where they were fighting Peniel, which translated means, I have fought with God. I have seen God and I lived. May I make a few observations? This ain't even the sermon yet. We'll get into that. Can I make a few observations? One, apparently, it is completely within God's character to jump you in the middle of the night and pick a fight he intends to win. So whatever your image of God is, if it does not include a God who can come upon you suddenly in the night when you are vulnerable and alone, well then that image should be shattered so another one can arise, one that is bigger. Observation number two. When God jumps you and picks a fight, You better learn how to fight with him without leaving him. Most of the time when you wrestle with God, you get angry with God or you leave God because you can't stand the fight. If you do not stay in the fight with God who clearly intends to fight with you, then you cannot overcome. And three, if you overcome, it'll change your identity 
It'll change your name. You and God will have a memory etched in your mind of a night the two of you went at it. And there will be a bond formed between you and God in a struggle that is peculiar to your situation. And believe me, whatever your relationship with God is right now, that one is even better. But that comes on the other end of a fight that you might be afraid of. You all right? Jeremiah is a prophet who finds himself caught in that very kind of struggle with God. He has his own night, so to speak, at the Jabbok River, where out of nowhere, the awareness of who God is and how he's acting in ways unbecoming of himself suddenly overwhelms Jeremiah, and the two of them have at it. The, the book of Jeremiah, uh, if I could summarize it quickly for you so you can grasp the breadth of it, it, it moves, you guys, along two narratives. The larger narrative is God's struggle with the nation Israel. And the smaller second narrative is Jeremiah's own struggle with God. In the larger narrative, God's struggle with the nation, God finds himself in a crucible. He is frustrated with his people, and yet he, he can't leave them. He's going to send them into exile, he says, and then a moment later he says, but I'm going too. <laughs> and when I read this, I... I thought, of, uh, I thought of the theologian Brian Adams who has a song that says, if you're going to leave me, can I come too? If you're going to go, can I go with you? And if you say no, I'm still going to go. This sort of where God finds himself with his people. He's in a crucible. On the one hand, he's frustrated with them and he's angry with them and he's going to send them away. But on the other hand, out of God's own character of loyalty and love and faithfulness, he must go with them into exile. It's a terrible place to be if you're God. The second smaller narrative is Jeremiah's struggle with God. From the very beginning, Jeremiah is called to be a prophet. If you read in Jeremiah chapter 1, the words formed, set apart, appointed to be a prophet, all come before Jeremiah is even born. If you have a Wesleyan theology... This is a naughty verse. And your head's about ready to go. All of this happens 
before he is born. And if it seems to you like that's a blessing, it feels like a curse to him because Jeremiah feels himself compelled to go wherever God tells him to go and to say whatever God tells him to say. But God keeps calling him to say these things to a nation that will not listen. And so just like God, Jeremiah finds himself in his own little crucible. On the one hand, he has these deep convictions. He sees the world in right and wrong. He frames everything in a moral term. And yet on the other hand, he finds himself saying these things to an audience that is morally adrift. So right when he... He says it himself in Jeremiah chapter 20. These are Jeremiah's own words to Yahweh. He says, Yahweh, you have deceived me. You have overpowered me. These words that you gave me to say, when I say them, the people mock me and they ridicule me. I can't take it any longer. And then a, one verse later, he, he turns and he says, but these words that you gave me, they are like a fire that is shut up in my bones. I say to myself, I won't mention God anymore, but I can't. I feel like I have to say him. You see, do you see the crucible that he's in? Every time I say what you told me to say, it just alienates me further and further from the people I love. God, I feel like I'm bipolar right now. I look at the nation. In one moment, I say to myself, well, maybe if we try this, maybe if we change that, then the culture will listen to us. Oh, God. And then a moment later, when his mood has turned, he just says, burn it all down. This is why he is so attractive of a character for today. Because he appears to be so emotionally inconsistent. Don't look at me like that. Haven't you, haven't you guys gone in rift on something any time in the last two or three years about the way things should be. And when you rift on it, it just felt like your audience was drifting further and further away. And you came home and you said to yourself, well, maybe I should say it like this. And the other half of your brain was saying, ah, forget them. Is it not, is it just me? You have fed you can nod if that is true. Now, I know it's quiet, and I know to say something in the morning service, it's like the 11th commandment, but you can nod if that's true of you. I want to know who I'm talking to. See, I have, an, I, have some, I have some friends who are like, I thought of, I have a number of friends who are university presidents in and out of the Wesleyan Church. And they feel this for sure because they feel like they're trying to hold the fort 
in a culture that is morally adrift. And the government is always changing and they're always wondering when they're going to take the last yard away from them constantly. They live in that tension. I know some large church pastors who feel the same thing. They get up on a Sunday morning and they say what the Lord has laid on their heart. We used to put it like that. And they'll, call, and they'll say, you know, every time I say this, it feels like people are just drifting further and further away. And Steve, these are not the people of society. These are the people of God. These are the people who are supposed to revere the word of God. And there is this sleepy yawn across the congregation when I say let's pray or when I say let's read the word. Steve, those are the only two times in the service when we are talking to God and God is talking to us and yet those are the two most boring times in the service every time I call one. I feel it. I know people who are columnists on social media. I know people who are advocates of social justice in large corporations. I know parents and grandparents who feel like their kids or their grandkids are just drifting into other ideologies and other doctrines and other kinds of lifestyles. And they will write or they will call and they will say, I can't believe all of these changes are happening in one lifetime and I'm afraid where they're going to go. Are you still listening? Let me riff for them for a second. Here's, here's what I hear when they write or call. Steve, this is no longer a matter of what is right and wrong. This is a matter of what is sustainable. The present course is no longer sustainable. If we sow the wind, we will reap the whirlwind, whether we want the whirlwind or not. If we continue to play in the River Niagara long enough, we will sooner or later get into a current we can't get out of. And once that current grabs us, it's going to pull us into places we don't want to go. And we can shout, not my fault, not my fault, while we go over the falls. Steve, ideas have consequences. And some of those consequences are intended and other ones are unintended. But when we make decisions, we are responsible for both sets of consequences. And while we sit and form convictions about what kind of God there must be, we should remember, they say, that God is forming convictions about us at the same time. And we can ill afford for God's convictions to go sideways. Steve, it can take years to undo the damage of bad ideas. I hear them. I hear you. I have this fire shut up in my bones, and yet when I go to say it, I get this look like, oh, you're one of them. 
They locate you on the ideological map. Mm. I know where you're at. Right here. And they dismiss the power of your argument and the fire in your bones so they can label you. And part of you wants to fight back and part of you just wants to quit. Your real argument is with God. So one night, Jeremiah learns that there's an attempt on his life. There's a posse of men from a little city called Anatot. It's a little burg about three miles outside of Jerusalem, the capital. And these men, Jeremiah is from Anatot. It's his hometown. Here's the other thing. Most of the people in Anatot are either Levites or priests. So now we've added insult to injury. There's a posse of men that have come together to kill Jeremiah because they don't like the stuff he's saying. But the people that have conspired to kill him are either childhood friends that he used to know or they are the religious leaders of the nation. So on top of the fear, Jeremiah feels this sense of, what, you too? happening to him. So one night, while he is alone, he and God have at it. It's Jeremiah who lays the first blow. He says to God, Lord, your judgments are righteous, but I would speak to you about your justice. <laughs> you got to respect a man for that. And then he goes into this old theotic question. Why is it that wicked people prosper? Why is it that faithless people live at ease? I look around me and, and their lives are full of stuff. And Jeremiah says, and it ain't luck because you planted them there. All of the fruit that they're enjoying has come from your hands. You could have shut this down at any moment. You refused to do it. These people, they talk about you. They call you the man upstairs or big daddy or the good Lord, but you are far from their hearts. They don't even know you. In fact, they don't even think you see them. But me, I can't get away with anything. I say one thing and you hear it and you crack down on it. If I even have a thought, he says, you examine my thought. So God, you are righteous, but I would speak to you about your justice. How much longer is the nation going to suffer the bad decisions that these people have made? 
It's quite a, it's quite a blow. And then God begins to speak. Not unlike he did in Job. Jeremiah is perhaps expecting a pat on the head that says, now, now, boy, hang in there. I understand. That is not what he gets. The first words out of Yahweh's mouth are, son, if you run with men in a foot race and they wear you out, how are you going to ever run with the horses? And if you're complaining when the ground is mostly level and safe, what on earth are you going to do when the ground is a jungle filled with predators? Son, if you can't handle this, how are you going to do that? If you can't get across the Mississippi, how are you going to do the Amazon? If you climb a little hill in Grant County and you're out of breath, what are you going to do when you come to Kilimanjaro or Everest? You ain't going to make it. This is where he had me. I sat in this argument between God and Jeremiah long enough that I began to think it was my own. And I heard God say something like this. I'll try my best to put words to it. Son, you are troubled about injustice, but your trouble is too small. You have these strong convictions, this sense of right and wrong. You frame everything in a moral context. And it's keeping you from seeing what is really happening. You can't see the big narrative because you keep recycling your same old tropes about injustice in your little narrative. Son, your struggle with me is part of a larger struggle I am having with my people. You complain because your enemies are mistreating you. Have you even noticed what my people are doing to me? I will do anything and everything I can to keep my people from drifting off. But as long as I am in this struggle with my people, you are going to feel the struggle with me. I need you to be strong. I want you to run with the horses. I need you to be able to navigate harder country because surely it is coming.
Jeremiah, did you think your sermons were going to work? Did you think that your struggle for justice was actually going to bring justice? To whom? For whom? You wanted to make a difference. Your narrative is too small. Son, I love you. But this is not about you. This is about my struggle with my people. And your struggle with me is part of a larger thing. So, honey, brace yourself. Things are going to get worse. They're going to get harder. First, I'm going to send my people into exile, and then I'm going to go with them. But stay with me. Once my people are in exile, their idols will die one at a time. And when the last idol is dead, all they will have is me. And then I will find my people again, and they will find me. And I will bring them into the land that I promised them. And I will make with my people a new covenant. Jeremiah is the first person to mention the new covenant. I will make a new covenant with my people and this one will not need to be taught to them because my spirit will be the teacher. He will be the voice that is inside them and I will write the laws of my covenant not on the stone. I will write it on their hearts so they will follow my laws because they believe in them and they want to practice them so they will obey naturally. But for now, things are going to get harder. And if you cannot do this, how on earth are you going to do that? You there? So that morning, I started thinking of the things in my life that I try to avoid all the time and if I can't avoid them well then I just complain about them only they never change these things seem to go from bad to worse no matter how much I complain and the reason I think is because they're due to cultural forces that are beyond my control and that's what's frustrating me it shouldn't be this hard. And I hear the voice of Yahweh saying, no, you're right. It should actually be harder. <laughs> this is safe country. So here's a few things, you guys, that I consistently stumble over and complain about, and I'm betting you might too. The first one of those things is pressure. I can't stand pressure. But pressure really is nothing more than... Um, 
being involved in something that you believe in with no guarantees of how it's going to end. What bothers me about pressure is that it could go badly. And I want this so much, I need it to go well. Um, I heard an interview one time with Venus Williams on her way into the finals of a tennis match. The interviewer said, Venus, you went further in this tournament than anyone expected. You must certainly feel the pressure. She said, yes, but pressure is a gift. She said, if I don't learn to play under pressure, I will never play at my best. And when I heard it, the thought occurred to me, the only people in the stadium who didn't feel pressure that morning were the people not in the finals. But anybody who is in the finals, anybody who is in a game where there is something on the line, anybody doing something too hard for you, anybody trying to play at a level you've never played at before, anybody who is tired of running with men and want to run with horses and can't will feel the pressure. Note to myself, boy, you better learn to play with pressure because everything that you have ever done that someone else has enjoyed has not come when you set the schedule or the deadline. It's not come when you found your own little cozy audience of self-affirming friends. And it's never come when you've fallen back on content you're already familiar with so you don't have to try too hard. When you were at your best, you were doing things you didn't think you could do. If you want to run with horses, you better figure out a way to deal with that. All I wanted was a pad on it. I put down failure. I'm afraid. Maybe you're afraid of failure. And as long as you're afraid to fail, you'll never risk. And if you don't risk, you'll never learn. And if you can't learn, you're stuck in the same old performance you've been in for years. So somewhere, if you struggle with failure because you're afraid, it reinforces narratives you already have of yourself. See? You're no good and you just proved it again. Long as you listen to that voice... It's like you don't need a devil. You have one. Inside your head, you become a prisoner to your own fear of failure. I put down criticism. 
Sometimes it's criticism that I hear from the public, not you guys. And sometimes it's the criticism I hear in my own head. Um, but um, and my tendency for dealing with criticism is to grab this kind of a kind of a bravado. You know what I mean? I said, I don't care what they think. That don't matter to me what they think. Dude, if you believe that, you wouldn't be saying that. The thought occurred to me that morning that when I fear the voice of criticism, it is proof that I am playing to the wrong audience. My audience is one. When I'm in a good place, it begins with God. I'm thinking of the words of Paul in Romans chapter 14. Let each one of you be fully convinced in your own mind. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. We do not belong to the critics. Church, listen to me. You do not belong to the reviews that people post about you. You don't have to play to them. As long as you chase the fear of criticism or the haunt of perfectionism, you will play at a level too small for you. As long as you fear horses, you will keep running with men. Son, you better find a way to live with criticism without feeling like you have to answer it. When you're defending, you're losing. Play your game. He didn't say that part. I said the last part. Last, last word I wrote down was change. Like everyone in the room, I've, I've said to the Lord a hundred times, how can I make any decisions? How do I know where to go if I don't know what's going to happen? Things are always changing. I can never move anything. I don't even have all the information. We know something and then we don't know it the next day. But what's the alternative, he said. <laughs> and there really wasn't one. So on that day, it occurred to me that I may not like my circumstances, but they are, after all, the only circumstances I have. And my circumstances, anyway, are not the reason that I can't succeed. They are the reality in which I must succeed. I can't control the circumstances, so I better learn to run at a higher level than the one I'm at now. Now, if you're waiting for me to come out of this and say, here's four or five simple steps, then you'll know that I have blown this message. 
My purpose for listing these things for you this morning is simply to say this. I think there's some people in the room right now who are in the middle of a struggle with God. And he picked it. He started it. And it's been going on for a long time. And your first defense is just to step away from him and treat him like you don't even care. But you can't stop caring. Your other defense is to cop an attitude toward God because he's behaving in ways he should not. And that will stunt your growth too. So there you are in the middle of a struggle with God that you cannot understand. Things are going sideways and you get no explanation. We must learn to find a way to struggle with God who has come to struggle with us. This does not prove that we are not the children of God. It means that we are the children of God. Israel means the people who struggle with God. It would be more suspicious if you never struggled with God. So don't beat yourself up for this argument that you're having with God. Stay in it and wrestle with him until you overcome. For when you overcome, you will be stronger for it and you will be ready to run to new heights. Whatever you do. God is still with you. I know. No, you don't. God is still with you. In the pressure, through the failure, with the criticism, no matter the change. 